0: Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 16, verses 14 through 18, and uh, you find this uh, passage on page 875 in the Pew Bible. I'll bring the text up on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is Jesus, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So, despite the relative decline of Christianity in our nation, uh, people still generally have a positive view of Jesus. They may not like the church. They may not like Christians or evangelical Christians. I'm not even sure if I like the term evangelical anymore because what does it even mean uh, at this point? It's hard to define. Um, but uh, what is, uh, uh, But when you bring Jesus, people generally have a positive view of Jesus. Very few people will say negative things about Jesus. Uh, and, but, uh, now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, there's a lot of people who don't know what Jesus actually taught, who Jesus actually was, uh, what he actually did. All right. uh, but here we are in a traditional Protestant church. Right, Not only that, uh, we are Reformed Presbyterians. We don't just like Jesus, we love Jesus. We proudly declare that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He's coming back, and amen and amen. So, dear Christian, what do you do? When you don't like what Jesus says. Few things make us more uncomfortable than when Jesus starts talking about money or possessions. I don't care what part of the Bible you want to talk about. The most uncomfortable books for me to read are the Gospels. Okay? Because of the things that Jesus says in there that start twisting me up inside. Okay? Few topics like possessions and money Bring out an innate defensiveness. And I say this because we are dealing with the pushback that Jesus gets, not from his disciples, not from presumably believers, but from the Pharisees who were angry about what Jesus has taught. Well, what did Jesus teach? What are they so mad about? Well, it's basically what we covered uh, last week and what's been covered in, in Luke 16 and maybe even a bit of Luke 15. Uh, but simply that we ought to make use, clever use even, of our possessions today to bless the people of God so that when our riches fail us, especially in death, we will be received with joy by those we have helped, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Further, Jesus taught that we need to be faithful with whatever little we have in this life. Now, that little, we may say, is very little compared to this, you know the, the little the other person has. But whatever you have, Jesus says, be faithful with it. Be faithful unto God with it for the sake of Christ, seeking the reward that is to come. And finally, he capped it all off by saying, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot do it. You will either love one or hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. So, and we close with that Joshua style call choose this day whom you will serve, mammon or God. And the Pharisees heard this. And as Luke records, they were upset by it. And their interaction with Jesus is our text this morning. But at the core of this passage is the reality that Jesus shares in verse 15. Which is that no matter what we say, no matter what we do, God knows our hearts. God knows your heart. He knows what's in there. And He knows mine. And we're going to see today why that's a massive problem and why it's also our salvation. Okay, first, God knows our hearts. And that is a problem, to put it mildly. This is because, as the Pharisees portray for us very vividly, that in our fallen state, apart from the mercy of God and the work of the Spirit through the gospel, in our fallen state, when we are confronted with our sin and our worldliness, we will seek to justify ourselves before men. And I've shared before how sometimes being a pastor it's funny because you be, you you're treated as kind of like the holy man. Somebody finds out you're a pastor. My, my favorite thing is when people fix their posture when they find out I'm a pastor, and they are like, "Yes, that's right. You were slouching. No slouching." It says in 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 in, in Second Opinions that you shall not slouch. All right, um, and so I'm you know and you know or they're oh you know or or my, or they'll really apologize because they like let off a few expletives and stuff like that. I'm like. I'm like I grew up in comedy clubs and I went to a military college. All right, just I've heard it. Okay, you're not. Oh, there's people who swear. Oh no, you know. Let me cover my ears. And so, um, uh, but uh, but uh, what's also interesting is sometimes I won't even bring it up, and people all of a sudden start. Well, I think God's fine with me. Like, just start going off about like, why? It's like, what? Because they just feel this natural need to justify themselves because they, they even have an innate sense of this confrontation with God, not because I'm so holy, but because of what the pastor represents. And so, and it makes them uncomfortable. And so and that can happen to like someone who's a faithful Christian who lives for Christ, they can have that effect, too, you know. And so and so but when that happens, people will seek to justify themselves before men. They have there's something they, their conscience is pricked and they're figuring out a way to 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 unprick it <laughs> to comfort themselves. Now, bear in mind that Jesus said you cannot love God and money. He just said that. But here are the Pharisees who are both publicly pious, outwardly religious, and as Luke tells us, lovers of money. So when Jesus says you cannot love God and money, the Pharisees are like, hold my beer. I am going to go do it. Watch me. I will do both of those things and I will do it amazingly well. But they act out their love of money, not like the rebellious younger brother from the parable of the prodigal son who took the money and went and spent it on a bunch of you know, things that people go, you know shame, shame, you shouldn't do that. No, the Pharisees act out their love of money in the way of the older brother by covering up their greed and, and materialism with moralism, with checking religious boxes, being very good, living lives of such scrupulous box-checking that you couldn't help but look at them and say, wow, he must belong to God. Look at how he tithes. Look at how he fasts. Look at how he prays. And the terrible thing, the most awful thing, is that it works to a degree. It's a con job, and it works. It, It tricks people around the Pharisees to believe That they are holy men. And even worse, that they go, if I could just be like the Pharisees, God would love me too. And so in justifying ourselves before men, trying to get the good enough opinions of men around us to say, Oh, you must be a holy person. God must love you by the way you behave. Jesus points out here that we deceive ourselves. Notice in verse 15. Jesus, what Jesus is not confronting the Pharisees with, they're scoffing at him. They are sneering at him. They are—they have nothing but derision and scorn for him. But he doesn't even address it. You know, it's—he uh, it, 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 what he does instead. I mean, that's kind of like the big thing today is, you know, people will go out there and they'll say something, they'll say something, you know, whether, you know, they'll say something politically or theologically very strong and they'll get strong reactions back. But then, and there's, and there's two categories of reactions that the people get. They'll get this kind of substantive, thoughtful kind of response and say, well, I disagree with you for these reasons. And, you know, would you respond and blah, blah, blah. And then you get the people that are like, you're the devil and you're the antichrist, you know, like, like on the other side of that script. And who do they respond to? these guys over here, right? It's a lot harder to deal with these guys over here who are thoughtfully responding, so they just respond to that. Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't go after that. He doesn't go after the sneering. He doesn't go after their contempt. He doesn't say, how dare you? I'm, the you know, well, he didn't go into that, right? He, uh, but what he does is he goes to the actual true problem the Pharisees have, which is that they are self-deceived because the con job didn't just work on the people around them. It worked on their own hearts, because they are buying the lie that they 're holy they 've done all the actions they 've made sure everybody knows you know how they read their Bible, what bible plan they 're on, and how they are caught up okay they 're even ahead they 're even ahead on their bible reading plan this year all right they didn't get bored when they read numbers all right uh, they didn't lose it there they kept Stalwartly is strong, all right? It was their favorite book. In fact, the the numbers part, the first 10 chapters where they're just listing of that was their favorite part, actually. They make sure you know all all the bad things on TV that they don't watch that you do. They they, They make sure that you know that their diet and their clothing are impeccable and supremely moral. How could God not be happy with them? But as Jesus says, skin-deep holiness, the hypocrisy that is lauded and applauded by men is an abomination to God. I mean, think about that. It's not just that just, that it falls short of God's standard. It's not that it only gets three out of five stars on Amazon reviews. It is detestable in God's sight. Condemning in the sight of God. Their best stuff condemns them before God. Why? Because it's idolatry with a veneer of devotion. Now what's terrifying about the Pharisees though is that Jesus says elsewhere that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you got nothing. So he doesn't say, Jesus says, yeah, the Pharisee program is bad, but he doesn't say because you need to be worse than the Pharisees. (laughs) He says, because you actually have to be better than them. But the love of money is dangerous. It is dangerously harmful precisely because we can't see it, because we miss it. And Paul actually warns uh, Timothy as he's pastoring in Ephesus about this very thing. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. What's a snare? It's a trap. It's a trap that promises something safe, something good, but delivers the exact opposite. And it leads people into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to be rich leads to other senseless and harmful desires. So one desire leads to a multiplicity of desires that lead people into ruin and destruction. See the progression? For the love of money, not money, Not possessions themselves, but the love of them. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is self-deceptive and self-destructive. It is not compatible with devotion to God. But it is deceptive because it promises happiness and security and there is a version of it that we can, that we can put a veneer of christianity around and call it good call it righteous and call it holy when it is actually an abomination in the sight of god and in the end it doesn't work and if you and i give in to a love of money then in the end like the pharisees we will end up rejecting christ and the word of god Because in their self-deception, the the, the Pharisees ridicule Christ. They disregard Him with mouths dripping with disdain and scorn. But they also, in turn, make a mockery of the commands of God. Now, one of the issues about this passage here is it kind of feels like Jesus is going all over the place. He's like, okay, let's talk about money, responding to God, knows your hearts. And then also, let me say this thing about divorce. Like, It's like, okay, well, what's going on here? Well, um, well. We're getting to what Jesus means specifically about about the law and divorce, but we need to understand to get the context that that Moses had regulated divorce early on in Deuteronomy 24. I mean, the Lord through Moses did it in order to protect women and discourage divorce, because and 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 God specifically later says He hates divorce. He hates it. But the rabbis, over time, over the centuries, had become more permissive about divorce. Not all of them, but a lot of them, and some famous ones. So one of the most famous rabbis from Jewish history is a rabbi, Hillel, who said you could divorce your wife if she burned dinner. If she really messed up the meal, then you could go find a better wife. There was another... Um, Rabbi Akiba, who said it was fine to dismiss your wife if you found a prettier one. And so the whole idea of the male midlife crisis of upgrading, you know, to a newer model thing is it's not new. All right. It is old. But if you press these guys who are being permissive about divorce, the thing that God hates, the thing that God was regulating and discouraging. They would say, oh, we're just following the law. We're keeping the law. We're honoring God. God is happy with us in how we handle divorce because we're sticking to the letter. And Jesus is saying here, Pharisees, you don't really know the law. Now, the Pharisees were a bit on the stricter side of things. But, they, but even they, like even the disciples, in another passage where Jesus teaches about divorce and things, they're like, better for a guy not to get married than to go with your take on divorce, Jesus. All right, on your take about marriage. But his point is the Pharisees don't follow the commands of God like they claim. They don't know the law of God like they claim. Which means they're not as holy as they think they are. Now people who go to church may think they're kind of immune to this type of stuff. But Matthew Henry made this, made this point in his commentary on this passage. That look, it doesn't matter whether you're in this building or you're on the roll or you're not on the roll. If you are not ruled by the word of God, then at some point you will make a joke of it. You will try to make it empty and void as if it was nothing. There are plenty of people who claim to be Christians. Plenty, even pastors, who will take the word of God and then distort it, dismiss it or deny it in order to make room for the God of greed, for whatever pet idol they want to make justification for. All those other sins are wrong except for my idol. All those other idols are bad except for mine. Right. And Paul had warned Timothy earlier in his first letter, and apparently people didn't get the message, so he warned him again in his second letter to Timothy in Ephesus, saying, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Think about that. He lists all that stuff, yet they could be all those things, or at least a combination of those things, and yet still have the appearance of godliness. But denying its power, avoid such people. And I will tell you, it is a great temptation as a pastor to have the appearance of godliness, because people will actually largely give you the benefit of the doubt. But whatever, whatever anyone else thinks about me, I know that God knows my heart. And I know that that is a problem. Because I know what's in here. And God knows what's in here better than I do. Because if God knows our hearts, then he knows what sins are in there. He knows the the, the sin that we've gotten so good at hiding. He knows the ways that you and I have deceived ourselves. He knows the accommodations that we have justified to make room for certain sins. and Why it's okay for us in this moment to do this thing. He knows the ways that we have tried to paint over the rot in the wood. But he isn't fooled. And that is our great problem. Now, if God were solely acting as a judge, this would be bad news indeed. But thanks be to God that He is also a God of mercy and love and goodness. Because while His knowledge of our hearts is a very real and ultimate problem that every person will have to face at some point, even if it's before the throne of judgment, God knowing our hearts is also our salvation. It is our salvation because... God knows our hearts, and thus He also knows that we cannot save ourselves. And because He knows our hearts, He brings forth through the Son the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 16 that something big is happening. That this is that the administration of the old covenant that has been in operation, that also did have the requirement of faith, and, and also the obedience to the law of God, has now come to a head. Because John the Baptist, the greatest of the old covenant prophets functions as this kind of seam between what God has been doing and what he is about to do, what he is doing now with this new work that he is doing and bringing about the new covenant. And John the Baptist is right at the seam there. He's the greatest of the, of the prophets, Jesus says elsewhere. And, uh, and so the good news of the kingdom of God has come forth as, through Jesus' ministry. He's proclaiming it, preaching it, calling people to repent and believe. And so the good news of the kingdom of God is not for pious pretenders, but for all who repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And so he says there, everyone forces his way into it, meaning... That sinners are entering the kingdom of God with grace. One author put great earnestness, self-denial, and determination. It's that pearl of great price. It's the only thing I want. It's the thing i got to have. Above all is the kingdom of God. And I'll give up everything for it. The point is not that the Pharisees were following the wrong rules. But that they were not trusting the right person nor seeking to receive the grace that they needed. They are convinced that the path of hypocritical self-righteousness will bring eternal reward. But what they don't know is that the only path is to receive the grace of God through repentance and faith in Jesus. This is because along with the good news of the kingdom of God uh, comes the reality of the fulfillment of the law in Christ. The accusation that is silently being leveled against Jesus, and sometimes not so silently in the Gospels, is that, he, that Jesus is saying, by teaching this, and, and that, that the, the law is being fulfilled in him, is that, uh, is that saying, basically, he's undoing the law, he's, he's getting rid of it. And I've even heard pastors preach this and say, well, you know, the, the, all the old, those commands, those 600-something commands, you know, all those are gone. Jesus got rid of them. God didn't get rid of them. Okay. He didn't, he didn't annul the law. He didn't make it void. The word of God cannot be made void. As, 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 uh, um, the, as um, Joshua said uh, and to the people of God, he said all of God's promises have been made full. None of them, literally the Hebrews, says, never, none of them fell to the ground. All right? Um, so what about the law? Well, the law points to Christ and Jesus' fulfillment of the law. Everything in the law... Everything that the law is given to achieve finds its absolute fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so with that being the case, there are certain aspects of the law because Jesus stands as the ongoing fulfillment of the law. And so the law is actively being fulfilled in Christ as he lives eternally. And so because of that, certain aspects of the law, like the, the civil laws governing the, uh, the nation of Israel, the ceremonial laws concerning diet and dress, uh, are not required anymore because they are fulfilled in Christ. Yet the moral commands remain as a standard and guide for the people of God. That's why we talk about the Ten Commandments still. And we don't have time today to delve deeply into this subject. We've done it in other weeks, um, particularly, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount series that we did a while back. Um, it is important to know that Jesus didn't come simply just to chuck out the law because it, it, it was bad. It was flawed. You know, it, was, it was our first try. You know, and we would try again. Okay. Uh, he came to fulfill the law because this was God's plan to bring forth the kingdom of God. And in doing so, Jesus exposes how the Pharisees were twisting the law of God. Particularly, he gives the example in the area of divorce, where, the, where he says, look, if a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, well, he's, he's, he's causing, like the way that men were dealing with divorce in that time, were causing women to commit adultery. And the man, in that time, it wasn't thought that a man could commit adultery. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 you can, men. You can commit adultery too, Right? He's intensifying the standard. Now, this is not to, that, to say that this is all there is to say about divorce and remarriage, okay? There's more text. There's more, that's not the point of Jesus' statement here. He's highlighting why the Pharisees don't get the law, they don't understand it. And that you basically highlighting look, you know, it's, I'm not going to water the law, the law down like you do, but rather the true meaning of the law, which requires men to love their wives and not divorce them for insignificant and foolish reasons. So what is the result of all this? Well, it is not only that we would trust in Christ for salvation, but it is that grace produces obedience through faith. Paul talks about the obedience that proceeds from faith. And so that we are still called to obey. I mean, there's all kinds of commands in the New Testament. Half the letters. I mean, you have the first half of it. Paul's letters. You can always divide them up. First half is him telling you about who you are in Jesus, and the second half is telling you about what you got to do because of Jesus. All right? Uh, and, so, and, so you, and so that's the basic breakdown of any of Paul's letters. There's plenty of commands. But grace produces obedience through faith. The hypocritical obedience of the Pharisees to the law was not obedience at all. It was, figuring out, it was figuring out ways to violate God's commands while acting like you were fastidiously keeping them. It was the way to have your cake and eat it too. This is the way of the elder brother from the parable. The way of the moralist who seeks to manipulate God to get what he wants. This is the way of the man who wants to love God and money. But Jesus rather calls us to repent, to trust in Him... Who as the Savior is the very fulfillment of the law of God on our behalf. And who brings forgiveness for the ways that we have violated the law. And he calls us to trust in him. To be clothed in his righteousness. To be given a new heart. New desires. New loves. And then in mercy by faith. We begin conforming our lives to the commands of God. One bit at a time, day after day, year after year, until we come into glory. The reality of it is that you will be more obedient to God through daily repentance and faith than the most fastidious moralist who is pretending to follow the Lord. It is is, um, sinners who have been made saints... Who will enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. And that's it. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today. We need to consider that very point. We take the bread and the cup. Not as a sign of God's approval of our wonderful morality. But as a sign of his mercy and goodness to us in Christ. God knows our hearts. And so we must confront Not only the problem of sin prior to our conversion, but the sins and temptations that we wrestle with today. But we receive the the bread and the cup as a sign of mercy and goodness to us in Jesus Christ from our Heavenly Father. God knows our hearts, so we have to confront the problem of sin because we have a holy God who is our Father, who justly condemns sinners. But we also have a certain hope because God knows our hearts, And he has given us his own heart. His son Jesus Christ. Who was punished for our sins. For our hypocrisies. For our pharisaism. Our rebellion. And was raised from the dead. That by faith in his name. We might enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you. That. You do not call us to be saved by our morality. You call us indeed to uh, to be a moral people, to be a people who loves you, who follows you, who trusts in you, who obeys you, who demonstrates our love for you by our obedience to your word. But we do not merit salvation by that obedience. We do not earn our, our entry into heaven by our faithfulness. For that, we always lift our eyes to Jesus. Your son, who was punished for our sins, raised for our forgiveness and life, and stands in heaven uh, as as the, as the living intercession for us. And so, Father, we do pray that you would reveal to us the ways that we have given our hearts over to an idolatry of our possessions or money or our worldliness. Father, that you would reveal to us the ways that grieve you and your spirit in our lives but that we would not despair as we see them, as we feel the pain of that guilt and and conviction, but that we would take our guilt and our shame and we would take it to Your Son who cleanses us by His blood of all our wrongdoing, who restores us and enables us to walk by faith, to obey and to do good works for the sake of Your name. And so, Father, we pray that as we trust in Christ, that there would be an obedience that proceeds from our faith and trust in Him, that is born of the Spirit, that produces spiritual fruit, that brings glory to Your name and blessing to Your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.